a post-COVID economy, looking at the global economy, the pace of recovery and the differences and uh, actions that investors can make to um, make sure that we are heading where we want to go. So Joseph Stiglitz is an American economist and professor at Columbia University. He's also the co-chair of the high-level expert group on the measurement of economic performance and social progress at the OECD. He's a chief economist at the Roosevelt Institute, a recipient of the Nobel Prize and the John Bates Clark Medal. He's a former senior vice president and chief economist at the World Bank and a former member and chair of the US President's Council of Economic Advisers. In 2000, Professor Stiglitz founded the Initiative for Policy Dialogue, a think tank on international development based at Columbia University. He's been a member of the Columbia faculty since 2001 and received the university's highest academic rank, which is university professor, in 2003. It's now my pleasure to welcome Professor Stiglitz to our audience today. Great to see you, Professor. Nice to be here. Lovely to see you. So the outline of this session is that um, Professor Stiglitz is going to give us uh, a broad overview of some of his thoughts when it comes to a post-COVID economy. Uh, and then we're going to go into questions, um, which includes with some investors and some other special guests as well. So thank you for joining us, Professor, and over to you. Well, thank you. Um, well, this, is, uh, this crisis, the pandemic, has been unprecedented. And accordingly, there is really unprecedented uncertainty uh, about the recovery. Uh, from the past experiences and from what we have seen so far, uh, we know this, policy will make a difference. The strong recovery in the United States is the result of massive government spending. Uh, we didn't have uh, an optimally designed policy, particularly under President Trump, uh, but we used the bazooka, and uh, the bazooka worked. Uh, one of the reasons the United States is having uh, a very strong recovery is that we engaged in massive spending. Uh, as uh, many of you may know, uh, the IMF uh, has forecast a return, a growth of 6.5% uh, this year, um, and that we are on target uh, to be actually stronger than uh, we thought uh, before uh, the pandemic, before COVID-19. So not only have we are, are we on target to make up for what we lost, we'll be a little bit stronger. Some analysts, like those at Goldman Sachs, think uh, our growth uh, this year will be uh, 8%. There's a lot of uncertainty uh, about uh, the politics as well as the disease. We don't know whether uh, President Biden's request for a new infrastructure bill and a, what is called the American Families Act will will be approved. I th I'm, I'm hopeful. Um, and of course, if that is, does happen, then we'll have even a, a stronger uh, second half of, uh, of this year. Um, what I want to do is is talk a little bit about uh, the recovery uh, from a more global perspective. Uh, the um, there are large differences in the ability and willingness to take strong actions, and uh, that is likely to imply a very uneven global recovery. 
uh, and uh, I've been particularly concerned about uh, uh, the developing countries, emerging markets, uh, uh, and uh, both the control of the disease and the economic recovery. Uh, in terms of the uh, control of the disease, uh, let me say we aren't aren't going to have a strong global recovery until the disease is under control. And we've witnessed uh, a lot of uh, inequities in access to the vaccine. The vaccine is really critical to to uh, the control of the pandemic. Uh, and uh, we've seen some of the uglier sides of globalization, vaccine nationalism uh, being exhibited in many countries uh, around the world, and, uh, including uh, in the United States. But um, this is a, an example of an area where there's been a big change in uh, U.S. policy. We are now joining 100 other countries in supporting the vaccine waiver um, on intellectual property uh, and a broader waiver on COVID-19 uh, medicines and uh, other products um, at the WTO, a waiver on the intellectual property that would allow the many countries in emerging markets and developing countries and elsewhere to uh, produce uh, the vaccine. The, uh, this has become a subject of a lot of controversy. Uh, I've looked into it in great detail, and I, I uh, helped organize a, a letter uh, signed by more than 80 Nobel Prize winners and another 80 former leaders of uh, uh, governments around the world that have come out very strongly in support of the, uh, of the waiver. Um, the fact is that, uh, you know, what, what the drug companies claim is that uh, uh, the developing countries, emerging markets, don't have the capacity to produce the vaccines. Um, but my response to that is, uh, if they don't have the capacity, what's the problem? <laughs> they, they, the waiver won't have an effect, but why are you opposing it then? Um, and of course, they have no good answer. And of course, the reality is, among the biggest producers of the vaccine are companies in 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 India, and there are some companies in South Africa that have the capacity. And there's a clear shortage of supply. Uh, there are many other specious arguments that the drug companies have have put forward. Uh, and if there's an interest, we can go into that in the question and answer period. But to me, it's unambiguous. Uh, this is an important measure. Now, I should point out, it's not the only thing. We, we, there are other measures. The United States, for instance, still has export restraints on some of the critical ingredients in making vaccines. And those export restraints have to be eliminated. Um, there has to be a transfer of technology to make uh, the vaccine more uh, production more accessible. But the basic thing we have to understand is no place in the world is going to be safe until every place is safe. And that's particularly true in the case of this disease because it's mutating all the time. And the more the disease is going around, 
the higher the probability of your mutation, and these mutations may be more dangerous, more contagious, or even vaccine resistant. So it's really in our own self-interest that uh, all these measures be undertaken. And as I say, most importantly, I think is the vaccine uh, waiver. Let me turn to the economic uh, side. Uh, once we get the disease under control, uh, I think there is the potential for a global uh, recovery. Uh, the, um, uh, but let me, I mentioned before that the very strong uh, measures taken by the United States uh, were responsible for our strong recovery. But the emerging markets in developing countries don't have the resources to engage in that kind of uh, action. Uh, the fraction of GDP that the U.S. spent in support of our recovery was 25% of our GDP. Uh, in the case of developing countries, it's in the order of magnitude of 2% of GDP. So uh, uh, things were hard before, uh, they're even harder now. And uh, uh, that raises the question, what can be done? Well, there are two aspects of this. Um, the first is that the IMF has the resources, has a, has a tool, an instrument called special drawing rights. It's a kind of money that they can issue. And uh, under President Trump, there was a resistance. He vetoed this initiative. But now the Biden administration is supporting it. And so there will be an issuance. I'm almost uh, sure that there will be an issuance of about $650 billion worth of these special drawing rights, which are extraordinarily valuable. But there are many of the advanced countries that don't need these additional funds. And so there's an initiative to recycle the funds from the countries that don't need them to the countries that do need them. And this is an important initiative that's just beginning. Um, and uh, I just want to uh, uh, express you know, how important uh, this is. Um, going uh, beyond this, uh, there, are, uh, there is an initiative in the US Congress to expand the issuance to $2 trillion. And uh, again, this is a, a, just in the early stages. I, I think this is really important uh, and that will help uh, provide the funds that uh, the countries need to respond. The second issue in giving fiscal space to the developing countries and emerging markets has to do with debt. Uh, one of the problems was that many countries were excessively in debt before, but what was a high level of debt before the pandemic has become an unbearable level of debt. And so uh, there will be crises in many countries and, and uh, what's at issue is both health and the economic recovery. Uh, and so, 
I think it's really important for there to be some way of dealing with this debt. Now, in the beginning of the crisis, there was a G20 initiative of uh, a stay on servicing debt. But a year and more later, it's clear that a stay is not that won't suffice. There needs to be a restructuring of debt. And we know from past experiences, these restructuring tend to be too little and too late. And the consequence is an enormous unnecessary suffering. So at this juncture, there needs to be uh, um, a, a, a uh, much more uh, uh, active involvement of all creditors in the debt restructuring. And when I say all creditors, it, it has to involve all governments and uh, the private sector as well. And that means in turn that the creditor countries, particularly the United States uh, and the UK, have to take more uh, active policies to encourage uh, the credit, uh, private creditors to participate. And I could describe those, but they're somewhat complex, but, but uh, uh, what is needed is clearly this, that kind of uh, 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 comprehensive uh, debt restructuring. The um, final issue I want to talk about is uh, the uh, broad rubric of Build Back Better. The crisis, the pandemic, exposed a lot of weaknesses in our economies, in, in our society, and that has led to, I think, a broad consensus around the world that we don't want to go back to where we were in January 2020. We want to build back better. Uh, and there are many dimensions of this. The most obvious is that uh, COVID-19 was not an equal opportunity virus. It went after those uh, who were in poor income and poor health and in countries where there were poor public health standards, there was more suffering like the United States. Um, so uh, it has, the pandemic has both ex exposed and exacerbated uh, the inequalities, inequalities in income, inequalities in health. And so uh, we want, and, and that has given rise to the fears of what's been called a K-shaped recovery, K-shaped within countries and K-shaped between countries, with those at the top doing quite well, doing it on Zoom uh, or on uh, Skype, <laughs> and those below actually uh, uh, suffering uh, a great deal. So uh, building back better means building back uh, a more inclusive uh, economy and society. We also uh, had uh, a problem of, of the green transition. And as we faced the pandemic, we put the green transition on hold. But uh, the, uh, the problem of global warming and climate change didn't go away. And the evidence of, of climate change simply mounted more. So uh, we need to, to uh, make sure that the money that we're spending 
it helps facilitate that green transition. We're also involved in a, a structural transformation of our economies uh, into a service sector economies, into knowledge-based economies. So uh, the implication of all of this is we've spent an enormous amount of money. There is a real risk of fiscal stringency going forward, and that means that we have to make sure that our money does double, triple duty that the money we spend on the recovery simultaneously helps us build a more equal society, a more uh, deals with the problem of inequality, helps us move into green transition, helps promote the structural transformations that are very uh, important going forward. Uh, I believe, and some of our research has shown, that there are an ample supply of projects that do this double triple duty, have um, large multipliers, that is to say, a big bang for the buck, so that given our limited resources, they will help promote a strong uh, recovery. So uh, this, I think, has to be uppermost, uppermost in our mind as we design recovery packages. Uh, that they they have to be very carefully designed uh, to to uh, serve these multiple societal societal objectives uh, uh, concerning the post pandemic uh, world. Finally, I want to deal with one of the issues that has been raised very strongly in the last couple weeks in the United States, but I know uh, is is a great concern to investors. Um, is the United States spending too much money, and do we face the threat of inflation? Uh, I don't, I am not worried. Um, and let me tell you why, I'll take a very American view, but, but I think it's, uh, 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 I think it's a, a reflects a, a balancing of risks, and it, it is a, a view, I think, that's very close to those uh, in the administration. Um, First, let me say the only time that the U.S. economy has succeeded in bringing into the labor force marginalized groups is when we have a very tight labor market. The only time we've succeeded in having uh, the people at the bottom have their wages increase relative to those at the top is when we have a very tight labor market. So I am hoping that we actually have a very tight labor market. I want a slightly overheated economy. Uh, I would welcome that. Uh, now, if it turns out it's too overheated, we have tools at our disposal. But I'm not, again, very worried about that because globally, there's a very high excess supply. Uh, the The... Uh, um, the United States is leading the global recovery uh, with China, um, and that means over the world, overall, the world has a, an ample supply. So again, I'm uh, not worried about uh, incipient inflation. Um, but if inflation uh, should appear. We have two sets of tools at our disposal. First, the Fed could raise interest rates. 
I think that would be a good thing. I think the near zero interest rates that we've had for the last 12 years distort capital markets. Uh, it is not the case that the scarcity value of capital should be zero. And as many of you investors know, that when the interest rates are very low, there's what's called a search for yield that leads to compressions of risk premium, and that leads to distortions in capital allocations. So getting out of this zero interest environment to a more normal interest rate environment would, I think, be good for the United States and the global economy. Now, of course, the transition from a zero interest rate environment to a more normal interest rate environment will cause some disturbances. And, and, and that will, as you would say, give you both opportunities and risks. And I think that's going to be something that will be uh, very much uh, at the forefront of many of your concerns in the next uh, year or two. The second thing is, again, this is much more of an American uh, perspective, is that we uh, have too low of a tax. Uh, the fraction of our GDP that's raised at the federal level in taxation is too little to finance the infrastructure needs, the education, the R&D, the broad social policy. Um, we need to raise our taxes. And uh, the United States has a very regress has a regressive tax system. The taxes at the very top are lower than those down below. Uh, we have uh, a tax system with uh, rife with loopholes. Uh, one of the good things that, that uh, President Biden is trying to do is to increase the global minimum corporate income tax. Uh, so there are many things that we could do that would actually make for a better economy, a more efficient economy, including uh, uh, raising environmental taxes. So uh, I actually think that uh, uh, if we have an overheated economy, uh, increases of taxes, which would dampen the economy a little bit, would actually again be a good thing for our economy. You can't raise those taxes in the way they should when the economy is weak. People get too fearful. Um, so the only time you can deal with, the, uh, with this problem of inadequate revenue for our public needs is to have a very tight economy. So uh, I'm, uh, 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 that's another reason why I am not worried about inflation. We have these two tools, uh, monetary policy and fiscal policy, both of which would actually uh, uh, be good for our economy uh, going forward. So uh, with that, let me uh, open it up for questions. I, I, I hope I've given you uh, uh, an optimistic view of uh, the post-pandemic uh, world. Um, it's a world in which we're going to need to have more global cooperation to deal with climate change, to deal with the uh, pandemics. There's a real risk that we'll have other pandemics going forward. Uh, 
We have some new problems I haven't had a chance to talk about. The tensions between the United States and China are going to play an important role and make a, some of the global cooperation that we need more difficult. But uh, we're in the uh, China and the United States and Europe and Australia are all in the same lifeboat together. And so uh, even if you don't like everybody uh, in that lifeboat as the Titanic uh, sinks, uh, they may not be your best friend. Uh, you have to row together uh, because we have uh, 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 we have to survive. So I think that will drive uh, global cooperation uh, going forward. And uh, that makes me uh, is an element of optimism. It's not going to be easy, but I think uh, we can uh, to use President Biden's phrase. I think we can build back better. And I think uh, the crisis, the pandemic has been a moment of reflection. And I hope we take advantage of that moment of reflection uh, to help uh, think about what kind of uh, economy and what kind of society we want to have post-pandemic. Well, thank you, Professor. And we've got well, a thank number you, Professor. Of, we've got a num number of commentators um, who are going to pick up on some of those points. But first of all, let's go to a question from one of our audience members, uh, a CIO of uh, IMCO in Canada, Jean Michel. Are you there, Jean? Uh, you have a yes, question. I'm there. Hi, welcome. Yes. And you have a question for Professor Stiglitz. Yes, and thank you very much to be uh, with us today. Like this was very, very informative. Like as you said, like one of the consequences of COVID has been a, a sharper focus on income inequality, and this is like a, a worldwide problem, and especially in the U.S. and and this has started conversation across like a broad, broad spectrum of issues like taxation. You mentioned that like social programs, the public health system, and, and and one important one from my point of view is the education system, which I believe that you can really solve, try to solve that problem through there, but. I think the question is, is the drive for greater income equality likely to materially impact the composition of fiscal and monetary policy going forward? And you, you mentioned that we want we need to spend money to get multiple impacts and, and to try to deal with the growing economy, uh, dealing with the, the, the green problem we have and also income uh, inequality. Do, do you think at this time we will really see changes and, and really make uh, uh, policies that will make uh, material changes to, to this problem because the truth is this problem has been around for more than 20 years and and it's been uh, very difficult to actually make changes that add an impact on it. Uh, that's a very good question. You know, um, I've uh, argued that uh, the policies that have uh, uh, been at the center, uh, bipartisan and across the world, uh, that are sometimes referred to as neoliberal policies, have exacerbated the problem of inequality over the last 40 years and inhibited the ability of governments to respond in an effective way. This has been a moment of realizing that those policies haven't worked. We undermined the ability of government to respond to the pandemic when we defunded the, the Centers for Disease Control. Uh, uh, we, need, we, we realize in the middle, middle of a crisis like the pandemic, the critical role that government plays and how we all turn to government. Nobody thought the uh, uh, private sector by itself could, could solve the pandemic. 
So that's the positive side. We also realized in an interesting way that we had created a private sector that was not resilient. In the United States, we couldn't even make simple products like mask and protective gear, let alone complicated products like uh, ventilators and tests. So we've understood that we that, that set of uh, policies didn't work. So I think it's been a, a moment of, of uh, understanding, if you want it, where not everybody, you know, I've been saying this for a long while, but I think the the balance has changed and more and more people understand this. It's still contested. It's still going to be debated. And we're still going to have to, you know, make our case. Um, but I think, at least in terms of the policies, when you surveys of particular policies in the United States show more than 60, 65 percent support uh, the policies of creating a more equal society. Even among cons Republicans, we get a majority who are in favor of a wealth tax, uh, who think we've gone too far, um, who are in favor of increasing the minimum wage. So I think we are at a moment, if we can get our politics right, and, I, you know, there are always going to be special interests. There's always going to be ideology. But I am hopeful. Uh, but I don't think it's going to be easy. Uh, every country has its own specific politics, ideologies, and battles. So uh, that's, uh, and, and so we're each in our own country are going to have to be fighting those particular battles. Thank you very much for that question, John, and for being part of it. And uh, Professor Stiglitz, want to acknowledge you for working on this issue for very many decades. So um, thank you for that. Um, we're now going to move um, to a, a more um, interactive part of uh, the session. And I'm going to invite some other guests to join us um, to make some comments on what you've said and, and ask questions. And then I'd like uh, for you to uh, make a closing uh, comment at the end of those uh, statements. So I'd like to welcome Sharon Burrow, who's the General Secretary of the International Trade Union Confederation based in Brussels. And Sharon actually had her General Council meeting today. So she's um, uh, fresh with ideas, I'm sure. Fiona Reynolds, who's the Chief Executive of the Principles for Responsible Investment uh, based in London. And Yarp Van Dam, who is the Head of Strategy at PGGM, which is the 268 billion euro pension fund in the Netherlands. Welcome to you all. Thanks, Amanda. Good to be here. Thank you. Thanks, and so Amanda. Hi, I'd like each of you to just make some comments um, up front on what Professor Stiglitz has said and perhaps what that what you think that means for our audience. Um, and then hopefully uh, he has some time to ask answer a question or two that you may have. So, Fiona, would you like to kick off? And obviously his his um, uh, closing comment around Build Back Better was, is right up your alley. So I'm sure that's probably where you're going to start. It, it exactly is. And thank you. I actually was in furious agreement with um, with Joseph and the discussion. But I think, you know, one of the things, of course, that is being widely discussed with governments, with the private sector and with civil society groups is the need to build back better. But to me, if we say we've got to build back better, then it is it has to be a recognition for everybody that the economic system and the social systems that we have in many countries 
aren't fit for purpose. And that over a, a number of decades has been talked about that we've underinvested in health and education and, and the public sector in many cases in favour of the private sector. And we need to rectify all of this. I think, you know, we've also allowed wages to be pushed down below what is a living wage. We've allowed, as already been mentioned, the wealthiest and those with, um, uh, and corporations to avoid tax. And this all erodes our essential base for essential services. We have to understand these things. But this is still continuing. Um, during the pandemic, you know, billionaires have made an additional 3.9 trillion and workers have lost 3.7 trillion. So are we learning the lessons of the past? Um, there's nothing wrong with people making money. That's fantastic. But we just need to address the gap of inequality that's there. And so we know all these things and we've talked about them endlessly. I still feel for me that the jury's out about how well we're going to address them. So I know that we'll make gains and I have no, uh, no doubt that we will move forward on some issues, but are we really going to address the systemic failures in the system? If we are, business and investors are going to have to be part of the solution, not just governments, and investors are going to really have to step up on their role as stewards of capital. I do think there's some positive signs of change though, but particularly on the environmental side, we've seen far more commitments to net zero. We've now got more than 70% of the world's, uh, world governments making commitments, and that's up from 20% at the time of the signing the Paris Agreement. We've got the European Green New Deal that's driving change. We've also now, now of course, got the Biden administration making climate and investment in green jobs and green infrastructure a real priority. And I think on the climate side, investors are also making um, serious net zero commitments through their engagement programs like Climate Action 100 Plus, where we're really demanding that the largest emitting, emitting businesses step up and have make net zero commitments themselves. And today there's a big vote at Exxon where investors are seeking to replace four of the board members. There's also votes this week at Chevron Amazon and Facebook on a range of ESG issues. So I, I think investors are really starting to use their power, both with businesses and with government. But I still think it remains to be seen that we will in fact forge a new economic and social system, uh, one that's really clearly needed. Otherwise we wouldn't need to talk about building back better. So I think to ensure this has happens, we need really much better cooperation between governments, between the private sector, investors and the NGOs. And we really need to build trust between those groups and cooperation. We can't just um, come together when there's a crisis. We need to have a shared agenda of how we're moving forward. And the other thing that I'd just say is that we really need climate and inequality to be equal priorities of the private sector. You know, if there's one thing that the pandemic should have taught everyone is it's that there's if there's no healthy people, there's not there's not a healthy planet. There's no healthy people and there's no healthy economy. It, they just all have to go. Um, they really have to go together. So I just think it still remains to be seen that we also don't fall into the same trap that we did after the global financial crisis, where government assistance was really removed too early. 
And what then came was austerity measures in many countries that really drove down wages and cut spending again on essential services. And I would argue that that has led to the economic inequality that we see today. So I think that, again, that investors have got a really big role to play. The private sector's got a big role to play. I feel hopeful from this point of view because I think more investors now understand and more businesses understand that doing a good, doing the good things, having good ESG policies in place is not about giving up money. It's about good business sense. And we see that with the amount of money that's pouring into ESG funds. I also, I'll just finish by saying that the other thing that I think and hasn't been discussed is that we do have a plan for the way, way forward. You know, the world has come together. The UN put out the Sustainable Development Goals, 17 goals really as a, a business plan for the world to address all of the issues. And I think if the public sector, the private sector, civil society could all get behind those goals and invest in them in a serious way that we will be able to build back better but we're not seeing enough of that happening yet um, and really and i know what i'm going to say sounds like a, a bit of a pipe dream of a huge amounts of money but if we invested annually you know three five trillion dollars in the sustainable development goals we'd be able to solve most of the world's problems. And we've invested more than that in, in trying to address the pandemic. So again, why do we, what, we've got to not wait for crises. We need to come together to really address this. And I feel a little bit hopeful, but I'm maybe not as hopeful as Joseph. I worry that we're going to fall into old traps. Thank you, Fiona. Um, appreciate those comments. And um, yeah, I'm going to go to you next because uh, uh, I think you're time poor. And we do only have five minutes left on the clock in its entirety. But Sharon, I think it would be good to finish with a conversation between you and Joe about wages um, and the labour market. So just, yup, some comments from you on what asset owners can do as you work for a large asset owner in the Netherlands um, and some comments uh, about what Professor Stiglitz has said and, and Fiona just now. Yes, so I, I think you you built the perfect starting ground for for the for the few things I, I would like to say. Um, uh, building back better and 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 the role of investors uh, in that. I think um, uh, you you also Joseph gave words to something which is which is around in the world and and what we feel in the Netherlands, but I think it's a broader feeling is this recognition of the role of government, for example and also uh, members of our pension fund and society at large are more and more explicit that they want us to play a role in this building back better in the green transition etc etc so there's an actual demand for this and uh, more and more the question becomes uh, to whom do i entrust and trust my money um, are you are you um, investing my pension pot in a way that will help to to build back better so i think this is a very strong uh, went in the back uh, that, that we haven't felt perhaps for two or three decades. And um, uh, so I think the building blocks are getting in place. I think generically um, asset owners and pension funds do understand the, the why and they feel motivated to move ahead. Fiona, I think the, the, big, the big issue is probably that they 
don't always know how. There's not yet a best practice. So I think we should work on that and we should work on that together in the years going forward. To me, um, it's very clear that we will be moving to something that, that I'd like to call 3D investing or three-dimensional investing in which we, uh, at the same time, combine the traditional need to, uh, to generate uh, financial pensions with a view on how to allocate and how to steward these assets in the direction of, let's call it more SGG content, more contributing to uh, the business plan of the world, as you said so, so nicely, Fiona. And um, so I think this is actually happening. I, I feel this happening also between, let's say, the, 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 the largest asset owners in the world. It's, it's, it's a movement. And I would also say that, that the tools and the measurements are, are getting in place. There is quite convincing research now that, that allocating to a large extent to SDGs will not come to the detriment of financial outcomes. So there's a large room to maneuver and also the tools to measure um, the amount of SDGs in your portfolio. So to give objective uh, yardsticks for uh, how much do you actually do, how much can you allocate more and where can you do that are starting to come in place. And perhaps to finish off with a very small, not commercial, but positive message, we at PTGM are part of what we call the SDI AOP, the uh, Sustainable Development Investments Asset Owner Platform, which, which gives investors tools to very objectively measure the um, uh, SDG content in the companies that they invest in and, and, and we're building on this. So the, the platforms are getting there. So, so thank you and let's move in the same direction over the next decades. Thank you, Jaap. Uh, Sharon, over to you. So, Joe, as always, um, makes the points so succinctly. First of all, recovery. All the hawks are out talking about, you know, a recovery on the one hand, inflation on the other, debt alarm on the other. But what I'm going to say is you can't have any recovery if you have a broken labour market. And we have a broken labour market. You've heard me say this before, Amanda, but when you've got 40% only in a formal economy with a contract for their labour and a third of those are in insecure, low-paid work, when you have informal work that now 2 billion on the planet are dependent on, survival every day, and more poverty than we had before the crisis, then you've got a problem if we're serious about an integrated just development model or even if you want to tackle it from where are we going to invest our pension funds, then we have to look at a very different model. And Fiona got it right. You have to have investment that has a lens of ES&G integrated. And it's got to be serious and it's got to be tough. Because if we leave people behind, the trust that's already broken, the despair people feel from low wages, you know, America talks about a, a massive recovery, so do others. But Joe will tell you, you know, the fight for 15 $15 as a minimum income an hour is ridiculous in one of the richest countries in the world, likewise in other countries. If we don't share our prosperity, there's no way we can recover with trust, with resilience. But it needs some other things. And we talk about a new social contract, not going to go into that, but if you don't have jobs, jobs and jobs, good 
a good climate-friendly jobs at the centre. We're not going to deal with any of the crisis, inequality, confidence, uh, a distrust in democracy or the climate crisis as well. So we need a rights-based uh, uh, resilience with universal social protection and inequality that is about wages, but it's also about gender and race. There are jobs in every sector you invest in. We can grow our economies, but we want to grow them together. I wanted to just finish by saying Joe hit on the issue of vaccine nationalism, but it goes way beyond. It is about the ugly face of vaccine nationalism. It goes way beyond that. If we are serious about recovery and a, and a just development model, then vaccine nationalism tells you it all. We've, we've got nine more um, billionaires in the pharmaceutical sector. We've got almost 2,800 billionaires worldwide. And when Joe talks about paying for recovery and Fiona says not with austerity from tax, let me tell you, tax reform is right up there front and centre. But so too is a development model where we don't just share intellectual property, that's critical, we share production capacity. And if you stick with health and the health crisis for a minute on this front, then how are we going to produce the booster shots we're all going to need every year, everywhere in the world, to stabilise economic futures, let alone the vaccine capacity? It is there, but people need to share IP, production capacity, and indeed, as Joe said, the supply chain access. But it's also symbolic of whether we can do that to deal with the climate crisis on uh, transition to green production in heavy industry, in services, transport, or whether we're going to stick to, you know, a winner-takes-all approach where you will indeed kill the ambitions of people to believe in a future and at the same time put our democracies more at risk. Sharon, as always, uh, leaving us with plenty to think about. Um, Professor Stiglitz, um, over to you for the last 20 seconds of the conference. Um, would you like to close out? <laughs> Okay, two, two points uh, very briefly. One is, uh, when I look at the cost-benefit uh, ratio of uh, what is at stake here, uh, it's, it's amazing. Uh, you know, if we expend, uh, if the governments expend a little bit more on uh, uh, vaccines, uh, we would have brought down uh, the the disease and its economic consequences much more rapidly. Uh, the cost of this uh, pandemic is in the trillions of dollars. And we could have spent a few billions of dollars and that would have diminished that cost significantly. But we're still debating these issues going forward, spending modest amounts of money. I mean, yes, billions is a lot, but it's at stake is trillions of dollars. And and it, this is not a, a complicated thing. Uh, it, you don't have to have a sharp pencil to figure this out or a Nobel Prize. Uh, it seems to me just obvious common sense. Um, so I hope we can wrap our minds around doing what all the things that we've been talking about, you cannot, and I think it was put very well, you can't have a, a healthy uh, economy without healthy people, uh, without a healthy environment. Uh, all this, these agenda are really the same agenda.
and they re really are uh, integrated. The final thing uh, is uh, uh, in terms of investors and those who manage investment funds, uh, you all realize there's a fiduciary responsibility, but that fiduciary responsibility has to be interpreted very broadly. You have a fiduciary responsibility to those who've given you funds, um, but that includes interpreting that in a very broad way. You have a fiduciary responsibility to the whole world, uh, to uh, society, to global society. And so I hope uh, those of you who are investment managers think about the consequences of where your investment decisions uh, go. Uh, they are significant. Uh, you know, in a way, we've entrusted uh, uh, an awful lot of power, economic power, to those who make those investment decisions. And the allocation of those resources makes a very big difference. As Fiona was saying, there are some big choices being made right now by the shareholders in a number of companies. Um, the shareholders are waking up to realizing uh, what is at stake. And that's uh, just a broader part of what has to happen. All of society has to get this better balance that we've all talked about. Um, and that has to be reflected in all of decisions that we make in every aspect of our lives. Well, Professor Stiglitz, thank you so much for those closing comments. To you, to Yarp, to Sharon and Fiona, thank you very much for being here and uh, for leaving us with uh, such inspiring and, and large task ahead of us. But thank you very much for being here. Thank you.